Welcome to the Swapflex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Boomer. And we are recording in the depths of spooky season. We are deep in the haunted house. We can't remember our way back to the front door. Somebody keeps asking, is that what you wish? And I don't know where it's coming from. And I really wish someone would start greasing the uh, hinges in this house. It's very creaky. Can't get any goddamn sleep around here. (laughs) I do have some like spooky season stuff to announce at the top of the show. Should we say, you know, shout outs to Allie this episode real quick first? Yeah, she is experiencing some body horror issues right now. Yeah, d- uh, under the weather is what I was going to say, but body horror is more accurate. Those text messages were harrowing. So, <laughs> Allie, uh, get well soon. I was going to announce that we have posted our usual streaming recommendations for the month, which I will mention every episode while it's relevant. Um, so over the past year, you know, we cover horror as the year goes around, even though we're not exclusively a horror podcast and blog, but we watch a lot of genre movies, which means a lot of supernatural horror stuff. Yeah, usually 75 to 80 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. percent. I mean, if we wanted to be better at branding, we could just be a horror podcast and we could just join the people with like Freddy Krueger claws and like Jason masks in their like logos and stuff. But then I'll have to post my reviews of things like Free Jack to my personal blog that no one reads. <laughs> I wanted to watch Free Jack really bad. I realized we published it on the same day as the 30th anniversary of Demolition Man. Oh my god, really? Which you name dropped, and I was like, damn, would it be a great day to watch Free Jack right now? A lot of stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight has come up recently in the news, I guess. Exciting stuff to tease the top. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you're frustrated... Flipping through your thousand different streaming services, not sure what to watch this Halloween. Uh, There are movies we recommended over the past year that are horror-themed, neatly contained in one list that I'll add in the show notes, and it says where it's streaming right now. Another thing I want to announce is that at the end of October, on the 22nd, so the week before Halloween weekend, uh, I will be at Gasa Gasa selling Swamp Flick zines again, which I have not done since NoCaz called it quits around 2019. And Gaza Gaza is, for our listeners. Uh, It is an uptown music venue on Ferret Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's where I saw Shushu a few months ago. So if you're at the Shushu show, just go back where you saw them. (laughs) I'll be standing right where I was standing last time. Can't promise any fabulous muscles this time, but maybe. (laughs) I've seen some pretty sexy zines. If I'm left alone long enough, I do sing Shushu to myself. So if you see me muttering in the corner, that's probably what I'm doing. And yeah, I guess the third thing I want to announce is that Boomer is writing again at incredible speeds. (laughs) (laughs) And we've been posting your reviews every day this week. I have 10 movies that I have watched since we met last time. And after we wrapped up our last recording, I don't know if you remember as I was uploading my audio, I was like, oh, I can hear the rain starting to fall. I'm going to go and watch it. And I did for about five minutes and then it turned into hail. A small-sized hail. So both of my car windshields were broken that night, and I've been Uh, completely housebound for the past two weeks. I mean, I've gone out and I've done things. I live in a city with pretty decent public transportation. But, you know, uh, I haven't been able to, like, go and do as much as I normally would. So obviously I've been spending that time by uh, watching more movies. Um, To segue into one of the things that you were just saying is... uh, you mentioned all of the thousand streaming services. I'm, I'm doing some cat sitting for a neighbor right now. And I went to her house and I was looking at the streaming services that she has. And I was actually going through the HBO Max horror tag. And I was like, wow, 
there's not a ton in here and i've seen like 80 percent of it and i'm not really sure that i'm in the mood for like cast a deadly spell tonight so i did what i always do in that situation and flipped over to tubi where i discovered the 1999 remake of the house on haunted hill we were saying off mic before it's not great we both wish that it was better um in that like weird cabal of the house on haunted hill the haunting aka the haunting of hill house and the 13 ghosts remake that all came out within a few years of each other oh you skipped the best one which one uh house of wax oh Paris Hilton. see okay i uh, house of wax came out when i was in college and the ones i'm talking about came out when i was in middle school there's not a huge difference in time there but you're right those are all the same production company yeah yeah yeah, you're right. And they're all William Castle remakes um, produced by Robert Zemeckis. So they're all very special effects heavy in that like CGI style of the time. Uh, House of Wax is one that has a little bit of actual like physical production value to it as well. Yeah, I I have not as harsh feelings for The Haunting of Hill House as I do for The House on Haunted Hill. Um, I think that The House on Haunted Hill probably had better production values and a more interesting like not a more interesting cast but an interesting cast in its own right um i think that the edge goes purely to lily taylor i love her i think that if lily taylor were not in that haunting remake it would be a much fairer fight and i don't remember anything about 13 ghosts i haven't seen it since i was like a child really cool monster designs Kind of like in most Hellraiser sequels, like really cool monster designs and a movie that has nothing interesting to do with them. So like you get a look at one and you're like, wow, that looks great. And then uh, you're just completely bored by the way those little action figures are moved around the screen. Well, I will say the monster designs and ghost designs in the house on Haunted Hill are not bad. I was surprised by how good they were for a movie of that time like if they were in a local haunted house it would be the best haunted house in the country um unfortunately they're in this big budget movie with famke jensen and um jeff combs in a minor role which i had i guess the first time i saw this when i was a teenager i had no idea who jeff combs was yet or at least you know not fully having not seen reanimator and like you know all of star trek yet so yeah, I Jeff Combs, I was a little disappointed because his character dies in like the first 10 minutes, but then he's a ghost. So that's great. He's still around, you know, he gets fourth or fifth billing or whatever for a good reason. I what are your feelings about the original versions of Haunting House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts? Like, well, I love William Castle. Huge fan. One of my favorite American directors. I'm not going to exaggerate any more than that, but, you know, he's like a really intense visual stylist for someone who did not have a lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of what he's famous for is the gimmickry, which, you know, I love novelty, especially in a genre context. And I love a man who can sell a picture, but it's not like he's selling something without entertainment value. Like once your butt is in the seat, he's still there to entertain you. So I love stuff like the tingler and the original house on haunted Hill. um, For instance, like I love that movie, Vincent price, is great in it and it has like really bitchy heterosexual divorce energy to yeah. it where like the main husband and wife characters absolutely hate each other and it's like fun and campy the way they go back and forth yeah it's got real virginia wolf energy yes and that spirit is 
lost in the 1999 one with Jeffrey Rush and Fonka Jensen, I believe are the main couple. Yeah. Their back and forth is so bitter and ugly. Like it just misses the fun camp by a little bit, just by being a little too mean. Yeah. And I just found it kind of miserable watching their report. I would agree. I would concur. Neither of them seems to be having a good time with this performance either. They both, um, to their credit, they're right, but they both seem to think the movie is beneath them. And like I said, they are correct, but yeah, uh, you know, uh, they, Famke seems very bored in this, and I love her, but I, I mean, we can say, sure, this was like an acting choice, but she is not really, um, she doesn't seem to be giving it her all. She's not present. Yeah. Should she for this movie? I don't know. The thing about 13 Ghosts, I don't remember the original. I mean, I don't remember the remake. I saw the original more recently, and I was very bored by it. Um, and I think that that one, without like the gimmick, is the most dull. Like Haunting of Hill House, or just The Haunting, excuse me, and House on Haunted Hill, those movies are interesting in and of their own right. Whereas I think 13 Ghosts only works you know, the original as a gimmick. The original The Haunting, worth noting, is not a William Castle movie and is actually just one of the best horror movies ever made <laughs> separate from that. I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna be like, no, you're wrong, but I didn't think that that was accurate. Right. But the the Dark Castle brand that um Robert Zemeckis founded was supposed to be all William Castle remakes. Uh so yeah, I should probably just clarify that one was outside of that gimmicky stuff. And yeah, it's not as silly as the rest of these. Go down there and delete your comment, Pete Ant. <laughs> but yeah, I don't uh, I don't particularly remember the original 13 Ghosts very well. The two or three William Castles that really stick out to me are like The Tingler, Straight Jacket, and House on Haunted Hill, off the top of my mind. This is a tangent, but I will say, William Castle was name-dropped in this uh, last and blessedly final season of Riverdale. I just watched binge <laughs> that while I was home uh, as well. And I did text you about it where they're actually like back in the 50s in this final season. It's so it it tested my limits. And I've I've been an apologist for this series for a long time that it's so bad that it's art. But even I was tested this year. Um, And what's very funny is they mention William Castle and they mention the Tingler uh, by name and talk about like uh, movie theater gimmicks to try and get people to come. And it's very infrequent that they actually use anything's real name. They do a similar to but legally distinct from name for almost everything. And I'm not just talking about like name brands. I'm talking about Bailey's Comet and a sci-fi pulp writer named Brad Rayberry. Like they're not like it's it's real. I mean, someone had a lot of fun writing those and power to them. But um, now we've all been made party of it. And uh, I'm not not a huge fan. Yeah, the thing about Thirteenth Ghost or Thirteen Ghosts is that um, the gimmick was that all of the ghosts were in three D, and you actually wouldn't see them unless you had the specialty glasses, or maybe not three D, but it was like a different layover of some kind where they were invisible unless you had the special glasses that made them pop out of the screen. And like a lot of three D movies, they're very dull to watch whenever you've got somebody at the studio who's just like, okay. You know, we want to get our money's worth out of like, you know, this person throwing a tomato at the camera or Jason stabbing with a pitchfork or whatever. So it's a lot of really long, repetitive sequences of the ghosts themselves in 3D. And they're just like skeleton puppets in some cases. It's like, it's not, 
it is not one that holds up. That one is one that lives and dies by the gimmick, I think, and it's uh, definitely not worth revisiting unless you just are, uh, you know, you're, you're down to what's in the public domain. If anybody lived and died by the gimmick, it was William Castle himself. So I'm not surprised to hear that if the gimmick doesn't work, then the movie fails. Can't argue with that. A lot of the special effects in House on Haunted Hill reminded me a lot of Jacob's Ladder, um, which is actually great because I rewatched that this week as well. Hey, we're rewatching that uh, for this podcast soon, too. Our one rule on the show is that we don't rewatch stuff. But for episode 200, which is coming up, we're breaking the rule. Oh, wow. Yeah, someone selected Jacob's Ladder, even though it was such a recent viewing. Well, I, I will say there are a lot of um, shots in the House on Haunted Hill that are very clearly taking design inspiration from the spirits and various other monsters in Jacob's Ladder, including even doing the thing where the footage is sped up so somebody looks like they're having like a seizure in the Speed Force. Uh Unfortunately, the camera lingers just a little too long on all of them, which is what I was saying earlier. They would look great in like a haunted house, like a local one. But on screen, you really have to only show it in flashes. And I think that this was another instance where they wanted to show where the money went. But my my friend had asked me, he's like, what is a horror movie that actually scares you? Because horror is what I watch more than anything else, as we were talking about earlier. Most of us do uh, on this site. And... I don't really get scared very often. You know, I'll get tension and I'll, I'll always mention and give special credit to something that makes me actually feel tense, like tenses me up and gives me anxiety, which is why I've always, <laughs> I've, I have sung the praises of Don't Breathe, even though I don't think it's necessarily a great movie. It made me anxious. And I was like, well, the first thing that comes to mind is Jacob's Ladder. That is a movie that continuously scares me every time I see it. I've seen it like six times. And there are still parts of that movie that if I am at home and it's nighttime and I can feel the memory of that scene start to bubble up from my unconscious, I have to like consciously put a wall in front of it. Uh, Specifically, it's the scene where he wakes up with his family and there's something off screen that whispers to him the like dream on like just like i have goosebumps right now just thinking about it um so we watched that and i'm i'm pleased to say you know it's held up great i don't think i'll ever get tired of that one um following up on that though we watched talk to me which i know you were a big fan of yeah i liked it It, speaking of things that actually like scare you i don't know if scare is the right word but there is a couple images of self-harm that i had to look away from the screen of because it was too intense which is a rare thing for someone who watches this much horror like i was surprised by how effective in the theater the scare scenes were i'll put it that way i think that i would have liked it a lot more if we didn't watch it like immediately right after jacob's ladder like that one puts you through the ringer so much and is so scary that in this one even though i thought its production values were high it didn't like it didn't bite into me as much as i was hoping it would based on uh, you know, the reporting from other people like you and others whose uh, taste I trust. It was good, um, but I didn't love it as much as you did. I, I don't think that it's going to crack my top 15. Uh, it's not in my top 15 for the year either. But okay. I, I think it's a really effective scare film. And I really was chilled out. You know, it's really easy to talk about the like violence of it. But I think the part that like really got under my skin, the more I think about it is like, 
the cell phone and internet addiction stuff, which yeah. is obviously something I focus on a lot when I talk about modern horror, but the compulsion to keep pushing yourself past your comfort zone to get more attention from all these like cell phone cameras with their flashlights on and like the yeah. kids encouraging each other to play with demonic souls so they can make TikTok reels. I found that very chilling and like actually kind of accurate to how playing with the undead would be if it happened now. Yeah. I'm going to applaud any modern horror movie that actually deals with current technology and life in the 2020s. Cause I feel like a lot of stuff in a cowardly way shrinks back to the 1970s. Cause they're like, well, it's, it's impossible to make a good movie with current tech and current aesthetics. Right. And I thought this movie did a good job of like actually dealing with how teens encourage each other to make rash decisions and indulge in bad behavior. And like the shame of that kind of environment, like making you embarrass yourself and people. And there's like a permanent record of it instantly. Right. I don't know. I found all that stuff very chilling and unnerving. Um, and then, yeah. you know, the violence was like really difficult to look at directly too. And that is what it has going for it. The most is the way that it's, you know, uh, you and I, I would like to say are of a generation that is, um, we were lucky to be out of our teens before social media really took off and before smartphones really took off in the sense that although there are people our age who have really bought into this like paradigm of like you exist to create content, like your life is content. We are luckily out of that loop and hopefully we'll remain there um, as long as Elon Musk doesn't put any chips in our brains. Whereas people this age, like, you know, there was a woman online this week where it was just like her doing a dance while waiting for waffles and like getting the waffles. And all the commentary that. is like, oh, you know, this person had to set this camera up. They probably did multiple takes. And then there's someone in the background who's just like disgusted at the fact that they're like, doing this little dance. And of course, people who are defensive about it are like, she's just enjoying herself. What's the problem? But the problem is she and a lot of other people have spent their whole lives being taught that like they only exist as like an online persona, like who you are and what you do and how you choose to spend your time doesn't really matter as much as how you package and market that for the consumption of other people in order to make corporations richer. Do you think we're exempt from that? Because I was talking to my therapist on our like final sit down before I uh, took a break from therapy, TMI. But one of the things she brought up was this project, you know, that I pour a lot of time into, which is this podcast and this blog, which are sort of dead art forms within that social media structure. But we're still not having these conversations privately, you know? Her question to me was, if what you're getting out of it is this small community and this ritual of sharing movies and discussing them and stuff, why does there have to be a public publishing component to that? And I didn't have a good answer for it. But, uh, you know, it is compulsive a little bit to, like, make it feel like we're actually doing something productive, quote unquote, to, like, put this out in the world instead of just, like, we could meet on this microphone once a week and talk about movies without inviting anyone else in to listen. So I don't feel completely outside of that even though, like I said, the versions of putting myself out there are these sort of like dead art forms. Like I'm blogging and podcasting, things that feel like reached their climax like 10, 15 years ago, 
depending on which one you're talking about. So it's kind of like I'm broadcasting out into the void and not really getting much feedback back. So I might as well just be anonymously saving this to my desktop and not hitting print. I don't know. <laughs> For me, you know, us doing this makes me continue to like keep to a pretty consistent schedule of watching things where you know before i was writing for the site you know i would actually write up like movie reviews sometimes but then i would just post them to like a wordpress blog that no one ever saw and i would post something like every six months and now knowing that we're going to talk about stuff being excited to to write about them that makes me actually finish the job of writing my thoughts out more often and i don't know as far as like whether i we've talked about this before i i don't care whether people read them or not right we get the we get the numbers they are they are numbers they're not zeros you know yeah and uh I didn't mention the name of that zine festival earlier. <laughs> I did a very bad promo job. It's called ACAB Zine Fest. So if you want to come to see us in person and tell me um, that you actually listen or read what we do, uh, I'll be in there in the flesh. And I'll be there in spirit. In writing, too. I have uh, a few zines with your words in it. Oh, wow. But yeah, I don't want to call into question the value of publicly publishing this stuff. I'm just saying that... That is a thought that I have sometimes. Like, what is that compulsion to do this stuff in a semi-public sphere as opposed to just, like, getting the little social circle feedback from it, you know? And and I see that in the cell phone addiction and the social media validation in movies like this. It's vulnerable to put yourself out there. Yeah. You never know what you're going to get back. Does anybody make money off of us, though? No, not directly, but... If yeah. you think about modern criticism, you know, there is a very thin line between critiquing and promoting. And we will often say, like, I really like this movie. You should check it out while it's on Hulu or on Shutter or whatever. Right. We are advertising. I, I don't really see much of a distinction between us doing that. And like, if you read an old, like, microfiche copy of Ebert and Roper uh, or right. like an Ebert review where he's like, this is playing at this theater until such and such a time. Like, I think that that's just part of the critical process or like, you know, the process of doing movie reviews specifically. You know, I, you know, to to circle back on that thought, you know, I've been working actually today earlier was out in the nice weather and was reading through the manuscript of the novel that I finished last year and doing my, you know, first first draft of like grammatical and spelling checks and just reading through to make sure it makes sense when it's outside of my head. What would be the point? Uh, you know, as much as I enjoyed writing it, I still want to put that out into the world eventually. And in the same way, I, I, I don't see that there's anything wrong with us. Not that you're saying there's something wrong with it, but no. I don't see that there's anything wrong with us or that we're that similar to, because to my mind, the thing that's upsetting about it is like, people are not reading Swamp Flicks reviews and getting addicted because an algorithm is like giving them the perfect light and color patterns to make them continue to look at like their phone as it gives them psychic damage eight hours a day. And as far as like influencer content, the purpose of that is to redirect money to the platform that it's on. It's a way that the corporation is like making you do uncompensated labor and not make you think about the fact that you're performing a service for their platform, not that, you know, their platform is somehow contributing to your art, 
Whereas with us, I mean, we're on, we're on like a WordPress blog and we're on, you know, SoundCloud, SoundCloud <laughs> there, you know, neither of those services has a reason, like, for instance, Twitter or Instagram would to like create dumbass controversial content to just get people to engage with it in order to drive the algorithm and get more clicks. I don't know. I'm not I'm not just trying to be a boomer about this where I'm like, there's a difference <laughs> between us writing film criticism and the children doing the TikTok dances. But legitimately, there is like a capitalistic difference that I think is important to note. And to those people, I would say I would love to read your film reviews. If you would like to to stop doing happy dances at the IHOP and instead. Oh, did you not read that New York Times piece about the first of all, it was called movie talk instead of flick talk, which really pissed me off. <laughs> it seems like it should have been called flick talk. But yeah. uh, there is a whole subset of film reviewers on TikTok and it is dystopian. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you are familiar at all with like I, I have never had a TikTok account. But like other people in their 30s, if I don't have one, it still filters down to me through other social media. And I've seen enough book talk and enough flick talk to be genuinely upset about a lot of that, where it's like at the at the rates that they're introducing these books, they're not reading them. They can't possibly be. Yeah. And a lot of those people are usually promoted within those platforms because they are supporting stuff that's already heavily advertised. like. A lot of the bigger names on them are doing SpawnCon for basically Disney and Marvel. Yeah. To name names. And it's not like we're necessarily A24 and Neon Bros, which is very ironic for me to say in the middle of saying that I really liked this A24 horror movie, because I do tend to like a lot of them. But it's not like we're like on the A24 beat and cover everything they put out positively and talk about them like they're a director, not a distribution hub right it could be worse i'm just saying i feel vulnerable to that same like putting yourself out there for validation feeling even if like a kind of a vague way and i kind of like being implicated by the addiction of that in in this movie all right i salute you on that i i completely (laughs) understand where you're coming from and there you're right that there was also a lot of self-harm stuff in it that was difficult to watch yeah and it's a triggering movie for people who suffer from drug addiction issues as well yeah, uh, there's a lot of that in there. Uh, I'm going to very quickly run through a few of these that I don't have a lot to say about. Uh, this year's release, Aporia, starring Judy Greer as a woman who is so drowning in the, her grief that she agrees to let her deceased husband's friend run a test of his time machine in order to try and save her husband's life. Uh, eight months prior. Now, this is not a time machine that people can travel through. It's basically a gun that shoots through time. So they take out the drunk driver who was going to uh, kill her husband. And because they are in the area of the machine, they are not affected by the ripple. And then they continue to do more tests. And uh, there's, there's not a lot of hemming and hawing about playing God. There's a little bit of it, but it's mostly just oh, you know, now that we killed this person, his wife is in a terrible state and their daughter doesn't have, uh, they don't have the money for her, you know, medical treatments. Um, It's not great. Uh, Judy Greer is giving a fantastic performance. Always love her. Always, you know, knew that she could do comedy. She's giving a really great dramatic performance. And that's all that there really is to say about this movie. Like there's not, 
a whole lot more to it than that. It's very rote otherwise. It follows very much the, oh no, we changed time, and oh no, now we need to change it again, and oh no, there's unforeseen consequences. It's it's all very by the book. It's really only a film that you would want to check out if you just want to look at a Judy Greer showcase. Um, I also wrote up about Free Jack, <laughs> um, a movie from 1992 about... A man who has teleported 18 years into the future at the time of his violent death, only to emerge into a dystopian future year of 2009, where he tries to reunite with the woman that he was in love with in the 90s, as well as convince her that he is who he says he is, because the people of this time have a technology that allows them to quote Freejack, unquote, bodies into the future so that they can transfer the minds of the rich into these bodies that are young, won't be missed, and are not affected by the pollutants of the contemporary year. Mick Jagger is in it. Anthony Hopkins is in it. There's an awful lot going on in it. Uh, definitely gets a camp stamp vote, but it's for free on YouTube, so there's really no reason not to watch it. Have you seen Millennium? The Chris Carter show? Uh, Millennium from, I think it's like an 85. You can no. read a review of it in my new zine at the Swamplex uh, <laughs> table at ACA Beef uh, Zine Fest later this month. But um, it is an 80s movie about aliens who abduct humans for some reason or another. Um, or maybe they're from the future and they abduct humans. And their ethical way of doing it is abducting people from plane crashes like the second before impact. So it's like people who are going to die anyway. Or abducted like midair out of the airplanes. Oh my god, I, I do know about this movie. <laughs> I bought it on VHS at a garage sale like <laughs> six weeks ago, and I haven't watched it yet. Okay. Very similar vibes to how I was reading the Free Jack uh, review. All right, I'm going to have to check it out. I'm going to have to check it out right away. Um, as far as other things that I wouldn't really recommend, um, Free Jack I would recommend... I would also not recommend Buzzcut, a New Zealand movie from sometime in the past three years. It's very confusing exactly when you can peg a U.S. release. I looked at the YouTube trailer for the distribution company, and they said VOD in the U.S. 2022. Okay. So I'm going to go with that one. All right. I mean, that works for me. Because it seems like at some point after it was like, you know, pay-per-view like VOD is, it just got dumped onto Hoopla, which is, of course, the streaming service that you can get through your library. Um, I would not waste one of your four borrows that you get from Hoopla a month on this movie. There were some funny things in it, but it, a lot of the humor was just very, like, punching down. And it wasn't just that it was, like, you know, inappropriate, which it was, but also that it was boring. Like, uh, the jokes, some of them were very, like, prescient and were very funny and, like, you know, are funny now. And some of them are things where it's just, like, repeating jokes that were, I don't, were probably never funny from the 80s. So I don't want to give that one a recommendation. I saw some promotional language for this that called it the first New Zealand slasher, which cannot possibly be true. That is a country that has a long history, at least until the 80s, of like low budget horror content. Like there's just no possible way. That's the first slasher from that country. I will not stand for that. Peter Jackson erasure. Did he make a slasher though? 
I wouldn't call any of his movies slashers. You don't think Beautiful Creatures is a slasher? No, I'm just oh, Heavenly Creatures? Heavenly uh, Creatures. You don't think Heavenly Creatures is a slasher? <laughs> That's the best case. It's definitely a better case than Brain Dead or whatever. Fair enough. And also, I would also say Housebound. Even though it's mostly a haunted house movie, I would say that that's a slasher or close enough for it to count. It's got a very similar resolution as House and Sorority Row, which we cannot get into the details of that because it'll spoil both movies. Well, I didn't know about the House on Sorority Row, but you've saved me some time. Uh, Great film, even with the twist. Spoiled. I have now seen Mission Impossible 6. So watch that this very week. I thought that it was a lot of fun. Um, I don't really have as much to say about this one as I have had about, you know, the others in the past. Again, I thought that five was really strong in the way that it had Rebecca Ferguson as sort of the Ethan Hunt foil. This one, I just, I mean, there were parts about it that were interesting, but I can still remember the other movies in this franchise better than that one. And that was the most recent one that I just watched this week. So take from that what you will. When Cece and I watched that in the theater, instead of reviewing it, we just did Fuck, Mary Kill with the cast. So I guess we didn't have much to say uh, about that one either. Do you remember any of your selections? I want to say I said Fuck Henry Cavill, Kill Tom Cruise, and Mary Ving Rames. That sounds accurate. Yeah. And now that you say Henry Cavill, now I remember the movie much clearer, more clearly. <laughs> and Angela Bassett's in it, and a thankless role for her. But you know what? I want her to get every paycheck that she wants. So good on her. Uh, uh, I forgot about the Henry Cavill stuff. I was like, what was even the plot of this movie? Okay, so in this one, we are once again dealing with a foil of the Ethan Hunt character in the form of Henry Cavill's character, right? Because he's the CIA equivalent. And he ends up being the double agent that they think Ethan Hunt is because he is framing him. Yeah, this one was good. Uh, The action in this one was good. Again, the action is not my favorite part about these. I do prefer it when there's more like spy craft. And this one had a fair amount of that. More than five, I would say. So I'm going to say Mission Impossible 6, Fallout, thumb up. One thumb. And then the last things that I I watched, uh, other than our main topic tonight, is I first watched No One Will Save You. Uh, which is a new direct-to-Hulu, or um, at least Hulu is distributing it, a horror movie about a woman who uh, fends off a home invasion, but the home invaders are aliens. Uh, Brandon, have you seen anything about this one? Have you watched it yet? Uh, Basically, everyone I follow online has reviewed this movie on Letterboxd in the past week. Uh, I have not watched it myself, but I have some affection for Brian Duffield. I saw a lot of people mocking his screenplay online because there was a lot of descriptive action in it that was written more like House of Fallen Leaves or whatever. Uh, What's that book called? House of Leaves, yeah. House of Leaves. And they're not wrong. I also saw that script page. But you know what? I would would much rather the boundaries be pushed than not. Hey, if the movie's good and he got what he wanted out of those directions, you know, can't fault him for that. Yeah. What else has he done? Well, I'm thinking specifically of The Babysitter, which I thought was oh, fun. Oh, right. Yes. Hated The Babysitter too. I don't which know if he was involved not involved with. Yeah. He was just a producer, so we can't fault him for that one. Did he also do Love and Monsters, the one? Yes, that's right. He did do that. That's a fun little creature feature, like YA thing. It's not mind-blowing. Right? Yeah, it's cute. Yeah. 
So I don't know. I, I have some affection for the guy as like, you know, someone who basically is living in that VOD territory. Like he would be making straight to VHS titles if it were 20 years ago. I'm not, I'm not following his career yeah. with great interest, but it's kind of cool to see something he made get very buzzy response online. I'll probably watch it before Halloween. And it's one that I, it almost like we were talking earlier on this podcast about cell phone addiction, but previously when you were talking about your viewing of They Clone Tyrone and the um, screenings thereof, where people were just like on their Zoom calls on their phones, not paying attention. This is a movie that you absolutely cannot do that with. And it will make sure that you're not doing it from the earliest moments. Because there is almost no dialogue in it. There's like maybe five or six words in the whole movie. And as a result, you have to, this is not something you can just passively receive. And I appreciate that it's like a, a direct volley against like people who don't pay attention during movies to force them to do it. But even if that's not the intention, artistically, it's a very fascinating choice. It makes for like a really, um, you know, the, the, tweet from Stephen King that I saw talking about it referenced the Twilight Zone episode, The Invaders. And that's like 22 minutes of that, where it's a woman fending off these alien invaders for 22 minutes with no dialogue. And this, you know, does belong in that same category. He's not wrong. But I would definitely say it's worth checking out before the end of the year, um, before anybody makes their list. I'm also going to chastise myself a little bit. I skipped over the one Brian Duffield title that a lot of people like. Uh, called Spontaneous. Oh, right. That's the one that you liked with the plumber kid, right? <laughs> you know all these actors. Every time you name an actor, I'm like, I have no idea who that is. <laughs> okay, <laughs> But I just kind of nod along. And one of my favorite of our old podcasts, <laughs> you said, and I quote, I don't know who those people are. They are not famous to me. And I That's think about that accurate. a lot. And, and I laugh to myself. I actually think you might like Spontaneous because we talk about Heathers a lot. Uh, it's a mutual favorite, you know, and a lot of movies that play off that Heather's energy are not mean enough. And that one starts off. It's a, it's a movie where like um, high school kids start spontaneously combusting in class. And it starts off with this really dark, fucked up sense of humor. And it kind of gets the Heather's tone right. And then gradually as it goes along, it becomes more of a sentimental drama um, in that kind of YA register that he mm. works in sometimes. So it starts off really strong. A lot of people love it. And it's like one of their favorite movies of the past decade. I, I thought it was pretty good. Okay. I've heard even more praise for this one though. Even people who love spontaneous were like, well, all the promise of that movie was paid off in his alien invasion film. It feels like something it, it feels like there are so many movies that came out in the past couple of years that are very clearly based on scripts that people were writing being like, what is the minimum number of people who can be in a seat? Like, wow. how do we minimize, like, potential COVID interaction? And there are a lot of movies where it's good enough that you kind of forget that that's what you're watching. Like, you you get out of the mind space of, like, oh, this is a COVID production. That's why there's only two people on screen at a time. This one doesn't feel like that at any point. It's not until you get to the end of it that you're like, oh, oh, wow. You know, this was probably the reason that there's only one person on screen for, like, 96% of this movie. Um, I, I don't know that for sure, but that's the feeling that I get. But it like far exceeds what you could possibly expect based on those restrictions. And that did lead me to kind of have like a wet appetite for more alien abduction content. Uh, so I watched the 1993 film Fire in the Sky starring Robert Patrick. 
Are you familiar with that one? No. Uh, I mean, I'm familiar from editing your review, getting ready to post it, but uh, I have not actually seen it before. It's not a very X-Files-y in a very satisfying way. It is very X-Files-y, and I really enjoyed it. Um, what you know, Part of what makes the X-Files great is that it's not just aliens all the time you know, mythology all the time. It's a lot of procedural work. And like, you know, a lot of times the monster isn't whatever is out there in the woods. It's the person who's living in the house that they're having to deal with. And this movie really plays for a really long time on your suspicions regarding whether or not these five men, uh, this is a movie about, uh, it's based on a book written by a man named Travis Walton about allegedly his experience being abducted by aliens in 1975. And the film opens after his supposed abduction. And then we only see his abduction through a series of flashbacks while his co-workers are giving testimony to the police. So if you can avoid seeing in the opening credits that it says, based on the book The Walton Experience by Travis Walton, which leads you to know that when Travis Walton is missing, he's going to come back. If you can if you can get into the movie and forget about that part, it plays out like a really interesting uh, community doubts local people about a crime type uh, narrative. And so I really enjoyed that. I did. I didn't expect to be talking so long before we got to this because I was <laughs> I was going to ask you, uh, Brandon, do, <laughs> do you believe in aliens? You know, I think I do. Aliens okay. and ghosts are like my two paranormal sticking points where I'm like, kind of, okay. you know, ghosts, huh? I don't really feel like it affects my daily life in any kind of way. But like when you talk about ghosts and you're in that, like something that happened in a place always has happened there and time's not linear and like impressions of energy can like linger in a space or an object. Like, you ever walk into a building, you're like, this place has bad vibes, like some evil shit went down in here. That's the way I believe in ghosts. And with aliens, it's like, well, outside of Earth, there's infinite amounts of space. And uh, who knows? Like, there's enough ambiguity yeah. for me to, like, be receptive to that idea. And I've had a couple experiences out West that I cannot explain. Okay. I'm not going to say it was aliens, because I think by the time you put a clear narrative on the unexplainable, you've already kind of lost the game. <laughs> but, uh... I've had a couple experiences out west that were unexplainable to me okay. in the middle of the night uh, that I can see where it comes from. Right. It seems semi-legit. I am, I am a, I'm a ghost atheist, personally. <laughs> um, like, I understand what you're saying, um, and I don't think that you're having, like, a, uh, that your intuition is wrong. Like, whenever you feel maybe that some bad shit has happened in a place, but I don't always, uh, to me, that's your unconscious putting information together that you don't recognize, not necessarily, hey, you know, but I'm not trying to make an imperial case for science out of like your personal, you know, system of belief and like what you've encountered. I'll also say, I, I think it would be the height of human hubris to think that we're alone in the universe. Do you think it's the height of human hubris that, we conceive of aliens as just little gray versions of us with big baby heads. That's the thing is, I think that it is the height of human hubris to think that we're alone in the universe, but the fact that it's kind of always the same and in the conceptualizing of them, there does seem to be a certain lack of imagination. Yeah. Like for me personally, when I say, I think that it's 
foolish to believe that we're alone in the universe as a form of life. I'm also saying that, like, I, I don't think that necessarily there's sentient or sapient life on every planet. So there's probably a bunch of planets that are just cows. Like, there's probably a lot of that. Just, you know, just jungle, just cows. No, like, things that we would consider to have, like, human intelligence. And my point of view on it is that the way that you would need to be able to bend the laws of physics in order just like for an organic being to travel between two star systems, let alone multiple star systems, you're basically talking about like omniscience at that point. So like, are we alone in the universe? Definitely not. Have we been contacted by things? I have my doubts. I mean, does it matter to me as someone who isn't privy to any information outside of my little circles that I run in New Orleans where I barely leave my little routes every day like does alien contact with the human race even if it's happening affect me in any way right now i feel much more affected by my catholic upbringing that makes me open to like spiritual phenomena (laughs) which uh we'll definitely get into later in this episode and probably why i'm like more receptive to the idea of ghosts than i should be as a mostly agnostic person and actually mostly atheist person if i'm gonna be honest yeah i i'm in the the same perhaps more so but my upbringing also would lead me to believe in the possibility of ghosts but that's one of the things that i've rejected about it (laughs) i but i I was just curious because i have a couple of friends who've had experiences you know like i have a friend who saw one in montana like as an adult and then i have another friend who was doing some construction work and he um didn't know where he was going to be working until he got there but it turned out to be like a Bezos facility and he was out there in the desert and he says that he saw stuff that he doesn't understand and can't explain but he was like but also it was a Bezos facility they got all that shit out there who knows so again we're i guess the the i i think the truth is out there <laughs> I'll quickly convey my alien story if we're okay. like sharing uh coast to coast anecdotes Love it. Uh, <laughs> I was out in New Mexico at a friend's house and I was sleeping in their guest room with another person who can corroborate this. Mind you, this is me and Cece and we were watching a lot of X-Files at the time. So our brains were like preloaded to, to feel and experience these things. But uh, we woke up at about two or three in the morning, pitch black outside, no lights. Or that's what it should have been. We woke up and it was almost like there was a floodlight shining directly into our bedroom window so like the whole room was filled with this white kind of fluorescent lighting and i was kind of frozen with fear that's how i remember it but like almost how people describe sleep paralysis like i was just unable to move and just sort of like frozen but i felt like i could move my body if i wanted to and then i just went back to sleep thinking that was the best way to deal with it and then i woke up later like just before dawn So I know I wasn't like waking up to the sunlight right? hours later. So I don't know. Kind of a kooky thing to share. (laughs) Someone who generally believes in objective reality. But, you know, I'm willing to admit that there are things beyond my comprehension in the world. And uh, as long as I don't start ascribing specific narratives and mythology to them, I feel like I'm doing all right. Fair enough. I'm okay with like things being not totally explainable in my human language fair enough Uh, on my end um i do think that there cannot be anything i can't conceive (laughs) and that's okay i mean sort of 
Uh, that's where I'm at. Hey, maybe someone uh, drove up real close to the house in the middle of nowhere with their truck headlights shining just right, you know, it scared the shit out of me. I don't know. And so much shit does happen. All of the stories that you hear, they're always in like the desert or like yeah. the deep woods. Uh, do I think that our military probably is responsible for almost all sightings of UFOs? Yeah, probably. That's that's my point of view. Like, I, I think that a lot of these people who've had these experiences, I don't think they're lying. I think that they're definitely explaining them through the lens of what they perceived and understood. And I also think that our government cannot be trusted. <laughs> But not in a way where, you know, I'm again, we're starting to uh, get conspiracy theorist about it. It's just true. They just build shit that hurts people. I mean, that's what their purpose is. They're also leaking a lot of UFO information lately. And it's like, why? For what purpose? Yeah. Seems like deliberate misinformation. Mm -hmm. Wow, this 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 got real. This got real moldery. I just, but I did want to see, I did want to uh, uh, just ask about your thoughts on ghosts, you know. I'm ghosts, a little dumb aliens. is what we've learned about this. <laughs> I don't think that that's true. And I'm, I don't want you to think that I'm calling you dumb either. I don't think that that's true. I'm okay being a little dumb. <laughs> I'm fine right. with that. Well, what have you been watching? Dumb shit. I, uh, <laughs> I finished the Chucky series. It's been a years long project because I was watching that with Cece and uh, she doesn't have quite the voracious movie watching habits that I do. Right. The last one I had on my list was Cult of Chucky. Uh, it is set in a mental institution. And um, kind of like what I was saying with the last movie, Curse of Chucky, it kind of felt like Don Mancini just wanted to make a evil mental institution horror movie. And uh, the only way he could get funding was by putting a Chucky doll in it. Like, it just kind of felt like this late in the series, he was just plugging Chucky into different genres. Interesting. Uh, that's how he could get movies made. You know, every every director needs one asylum picture, by which I mean a, a picture and an asylum, not like an asylum feature production. Right. Unless you're Argento, in which case you get like five or six. And this one was the only, like, I think, direct-to-VOD one. Uh, so it is kind of on the level of sci-fi asylum production values, too. But the Chucky kills are still really gory and fucked up and inventive. Um, and they still rely heavily on animatronics and puppetry. The series never went full CGI, even though it played with it a little bit. Um, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, bless us all. And uh, this late in the series, the lore has gotten so complicated to keep this evil doll story going that it's just delightful to see how far they can stretch the premise. And obviously, um, since the movie, they've started a whole TV series, which seems to be somewhat of a direct sequel to the eight Chucky movies. So okay. the story's still going. I had this really beautiful moment at the end of the movie. I'm going to spoil a little bit of cult of Chucky. So I guess plug your ears if you're worried about that. But there is a scene where Fiona Dureth smooches Jennifer Tilly on the mouth. And I was just thinking to myself, like I've never seen an actor's daughter smooch their long-term love interest like uh, brad Dourif and jennifer tilly have been sort of married off within the chucky movies for 25 years right and then his near identical looking daughter makes out with her late in the series um which i thought was very strange just on a metatextual level um and that's the kind of stuff you stick around for for these horror franchises that are a little long in the tooth you know you want you want it to like get to the part where like Michael Myers is in a druid cult or 
I guess the Saw movies have a very complicated mythology at this point. I don't watch them, but people seem to be very delighted by the fact that this man who's riddled with cancer keeps coming up with convoluted ways to torture more people, even though he himself should be dead uh, 10 movies into that franchise. So if you've stuck with Chucky this long, you're going to enjoy yourself just because you enjoy the characters. But these last couple of movies, I don't think were like very good. And when I think back to the rest of the franchise, like, the early ones are still the ones that speak to me, and I get that people are very excited late in the franchise that it becomes more overtly queer because it is a gay film director who has taken over this character he created and made it more and more gay explicitly as the franchise has gone along. Yeah, And the TV show is very deliberately dealing with that. I think Chucky's helping. I'm only like two episodes in, but Chucky's helping this bullied gay teen get back at his enemies in high school, uh, which is very fun. But I, I don't necessarily think they ever reach the heights of like Child's Play 2 when Chucky's in the factory and getting Cronenberg melted with all these different doll parts all over his body and stuff. Like there's a certain production value and sort of iconic imagery early in the franchise that is a little lost once it gets on the cheaper end and Don Mancini's sort of taken the reins back from the studio. That's interesting because three is a very cheap movie too. I have a fondness for it, but like when Chucky falls into those helicopter blades, it's very, it's not at all as good as that finale in Child's Play 2 that you were referencing. And you know what? The finale for Child's Play 3, maybe excluding the gigantic fan blades, that movie feels like it's farting around for a long time Mm -hmm. in the military school. And it's a little dull, but that finale at the carnival, I say is better than most of the late period Chucky stuff. I really like the iconography in that sequence. I really dislike Seed, which is unfortunate because it has a lot of really great stuff in it. But there's a lot of like really mean-spirited, bitchy humor in that one where it's like, it kind of seems like Don was like having like a midlife crisis at the time where he's like, I hate everything that the youth likes. We're going to drive Britney Spears off a cliff. I agree. It, it, It dates it and it's not very funny and it's, it would be funnier if it weren't so mean-spirited. Like, I don't know. If they did something to deserve it a little more. Because uh, otherwise, that, you know, introduces the whole, like, uh, Victor-Victoria element that's such a major part of the series now. Glenn or Glenda, specifically. Is it Glenn or Glenda? I, I said Victor-Victoria, but I, I always <laughs> get those two confused. You get the Ed Wood film confused with Victor-Victoria? <laughs> just, just in the sense that, like, the titles. Oh, okay. Glenn or Glenda is one of my favorite movies of all time and has since been reclaimed enough in the past year with these sort of like specialty screenings in a few key cities where like this will come up later again, where I don't feel like I have anything left to advocate for in the world. Like all the movies I love that were once like maligned are now considered cult classics because there are enough weirdos in my age range who feel the same way and have bigger, louder platforms than I do. That I feel like I've just sort of exhausted all of my like hidden gems that were like good actually in capital letters. <laughs> is it is it time for us to diminish and go into the West? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, even Child's Play 2 being the best of the franchise, I feel like a few years ago that was like not like a you know hipster opinion to have, but it was not like the norm. And I see a lot of that now. It's become more of a normalized take on the franchise. You you prefer it to the first one? Oh, yeah, by like a little bit. <laughs> okay. I so the thing that the first one has over the others is that they did have like a little person 
in like a Chucky suit for certain sequences and like a forced perspective set. So like, I like the way that Chucky moves in that one. And I wish he moved that way in some of the others. I think that all of them are lacking a little bit for not having it. And also I just love Chris Sarandon, I guess, is is, is also uh, part of it. And Catherine Tate. I don't want to argue against the first one. I, I am doing like a ranking of the series, uh, probably closer to Halloween. And that is my second favorite film in the franchise. Okay. It's just Fair the enough. second one has this sort of like pop art quality to it that I feel like is like, I hate to use the phrase because it's so cliche, but like pure cinema in a way that the first one isn't. The first one's like a very good evil doll movie and maybe even the sort of like ideal of that genre. And the second one pushes it to new heights where it becomes like pure pop art candy, um, especially by the time you get to that factory sequence. It's so good. Yeah, it's really great. I guess one thing I could rep for that's not as beloved as I thought it was was I went to the theater at the Britannia and saw The Craft for the first time on the big screen. Like, I grew up with this movie. I love it. But I've never seen it projected instead of, like, you know, on VHS alone in my bedroom. And I had a couple moments watching it where I thought, does this movie mean more to me than Scream? And has it always? And I think I came down on yes. Uh Uh-huh. the reason that I was having that thought is because they're both from 1996. Yes. And they both have Nev Campbell in it. Yes. And she's dependably great in both. Yes. Um, in Scream, you have that sort of chaotic performance from Matthew Lillard, which is like irreplaceable. And I yes. think you have the same in Craft with Feruza Balk, who plays she the head witch. is phenomenal. She's a star. And if you watch the special features, she's like a true believer in the Wicca stuff, which I guess anyone who knows Fruza Balk knows that already. Everyone in the cast was just sort of like in awe of her a little bit and a little scared of her and just giving her room to be as big as possible. And like anytime she made a suggestion about how to make the movie more authentic to like Wicca culture, uh, they just sort of like let her have her way because they didn't want to like piss her off it seemed like like she was kind of like a live wire on set and they were like well if she says that's the legitimate way to do witchcraft we're gonna do it her way um yeah she really does like run ramshot like over the rest of the production and you know even more so than nev campbell um that's the performance you remember the most from the movie is her still in the show nev is like third banana in this she is yeah i would not say this is her movie but she's very vulnerable and relatable especially for like a gloomy lonely kid yeah, her performance is, you know, it's great. It's dependable and reliable, and she's embodying that. But every time that I re- rewatch this movie, I'm always surprised by how little she's in it. And even, like, how little, you know, her motivation works in comparison to some of the others as well. Well, they all get very thin characterizations. We're like, right. it's a coven of witches who meet in Catholic high school. And, like, one of them, played by Rachel True, is getting, like, racially bullied by a racist cheerleader type. One of them played by Feruza Balk is experiencing extreme poverty at home and feels powerless. And that's why she goes a little too overboard with the witchcraft powers that they conjure. Uh, Nev Campbell is going through body dysmorphia issues because she has intense scarring on her back, which seems like a medical condition and not result of a burn. I can't fully remember the origin of that. We just see a lot of like painful body horror of her trying to fix that with these like, machine needles the needles yeah and then the sort of main character 
who I can't remember her name, but she's the bald girl from Empire Records who shaves her head in that movie. She is new to the school and um, is being bullied by Skeet Ulrich, who she finds very attractive. And she puts a love spell on him to make him infatuated with her. And yeah, all of them have very simple problems that are introduced very quickly. And then they fix those problems by becoming magically powerful uh, by, you know, submitting themselves to the craft. And then three of them take it too far. And the, the good witch in the center has to like thwart her friends who turn on her at the end. What I was going to say about Scream 2 is that Skeet Ulrich is, um, I think, even better in this than he has in Scream. He is so fucking funny in this movie. Agreed. And more sinister, I think, too. Yeah, yeah. In Scream, he's very good. He's like, you know, a dirtbag boyfriend with an evil secret. And he plays that skeeziness like very well and creepily and Mm -hmm. has some great monologues at the end. But in The Craft, he starts off as like a jock asshole who's then put under this love spell and becomes this like very confused puppy dog who follows around the main character at her heel at all times and can't stop himself from doing it. And the amount of like facial acting he's doing in those scenes is very funny and impressive. Uh, I happened to watch this behind a row of, it seemed like young college students who had not seen it before. And they were giggling like crazy every time he did anything like the smallest movement from him um, acting like a little confused himbo was just setting these girls in like titters. Uh, And it was like really fun to experience that working in real time with like a new generation of kids. I love that. And in a grander sense, what, what I'm trying to say about this movie and Scream, which did mean a lot to me as a kid, especially at the same time, you know, like I would have discovered these sort of like simultaneously as like blockbuster video rentals. But Scream was this like window into horror. It works on its own as, you know, its own slasher and like a revival for a genre that was getting a little tired. Um, and obviously inspired a whole wave of like slick major studio horror movies. But it's also like heavily referential and it's all about sort of critiquing and like sarcastically citing these tropes within the genre, even while participating in them. And it felt to me at the time like an introduction to like a wider world of like horror movies. But thinking about the craft and like rewatching it, it's so clear why it meant a lot to me as a kid because it's this power fantasy for these catholic school outsiders he's like sort of gloomy socially inept losers who like goth aesthetics and are stuck in this like school situation where the power structure is so shitty uh to call back to like our last episode about uh massacre at central high like yeah you're right living in that power structure and they discover gothy witch girl magic that like sets them free from that and they become kind of addicted to the turnover And uh, yeah, I think it is its pure own thing. Like, even if this came out a few years later, it'd be like, oh, this is the post-Scream version of like Witches of Eastwick or whatever. And it might have had more meta references to stuff like Bewitched or I Married a Witch or whatever. And as it is now, when it came out, it is kind of this pure 90s aesthetics, uh, you know, people walking down the hall... Um, and well, Rachel True pointed this out in the uh, special features, but like the bigger their powers grow, the shorter their skirts are hemmed as the movie goes <laughs> along. But like, you know, there's like power walks down the middle of the hallway while like Letters to Cleo or Our Lady Peace or whatever is playing on the soundtrack. Like there is something very pure about its 90s aesthetics that feels like a moment in popular art 
that I still think has strong potency to it as a power fantasy for sort of gothy, under-socialized youths. Um, and I, yeah. I felt it, and it made me very emotional and happy to see it again with a crowd, you know? I love that. This was a big movie for me when I was younger, too. But I didn't have as much of a personal connection. So I love this for you. And I love that you got to see the next generation of witches uh, enjoy this movie in person. I also watched the recent remake of The Craft, which I guess is kind of a reboot cool because there's some connection to the Feruza Ball character. Right. David Duchovny's in it. I did see that. I also um, knew a person who was at one point on board to script that sequel Uh. reboot like it was something that that had been discussed with their agent and i do think that they might have done a version of a script like a spec script essentially for it and that person had not seen the original at that time so we watched it together years ago and kind of had a discussion about it if i'm remembering correctly and we might have not watched it together i don't know it might have been that he was no longer uh contracted for it or you know supposed to give a draft of it and just never even bothered to watch it but I, whenever I saw all of the um, discourse about it when it came out a couple of years ago, and the fact that people were like, oh, it doesn't seem to understand what is great about the craft, I did have to double check and make sure my friend was not connected to it on IMDb. <laughs> well, I've only brought it up because you were mentioning or, you know, sort of echoing what I was saying about like a younger generation discovering the movie. Right. And sort of flipping through letterboxed reviews of people rewatching the 90s one. A lot of them have problems with the third act of the original where the coven of witches sort of turn on each other and sort of it sort of loses its feminist solidarity points uh, towards the end. And it's a little uneven at the end, too, I would say. Yeah, but it, it kind of turns into like a pretty standard haunted house payoff. And I think the imagery works like it is relatively spooky at the end, um, even if the characters are behaving not in line with how you were introduced to them. But I was just watching the new movie thinking about how it's like fixing a lot of the problems. And I'm putting both of those words in scare quotes where it's like, let's make uh, the villain this MRA Jordan Peterson type outside the coven. So the girls never break up or instead of putting the Skeet Ulrich character under a love spell, which, you know, brings up complications of consent. uh, Let's put him under a woke spell. They actually use that word. That's not me being an asshole. They make him woke and make him enlightened. And he becomes more of an object of desire for them because he's not a bully anymore. And he like thinks about feminism and geopolitics. And it's just like very dialogue heavy. It feels like a backdoor pilot for like a CW series or something. And there's just not a lot of witchy magic or people strutting in short skirts. (laughs) (laughs) and uh lighting candles and um floating above the ground and worshiping pentagrams or whatever else they do in the movie like there's nothing to the magic aspect of it really it feels like it's just sort of like cleaning up the sort of messy jagged politics of the original um, which feels like kind of a fool's exercise to me so i don't know i kind of like the imperfections of the original craft i'm with you like I, I would praise this movie, even though I fully admit that, like, when people complain about its pacing problems, I know that what they're talking about is sort of a more uneven, like, the stru- the structure of it, it doesn't fall into a normal three act in the way that you would expect it to. The second act is a little shorter, and the third act is a little longer, so it feels a little lopsided. 
but I have no complaints about the movie at all, despite that. And what I would say about the new one is like, it's kind of cute, but doesn't mean much to me, which kind of serves me right, because I feel like anyone who didn't catch the original when they were a teenager at the exact right time probably feels the same way about that one. Like cute, witchy stuff, inconsequential in the grander scheme of like genre filmmaking. So, you know, I got my just desserts. I sometimes do special things to my victims, things that are creative. Of course, it takes knowledge, pride in your work. For example, a decapitated head can continue to see for approximately 20 seconds. So when I have one that's cocking, I always hold it up so that it can see its body. It's a little extra I throw in for no charge. <laughs> I must admit it makes me chuckle every time. Life is fun. It's a wonderful life, in fact. This week, we are talking about the 1990 film, The Exorcist Three, also known in some circles as the Exorcist Legion. Uh, it is a sequel to, of course, the uh, film The Exorcist from 1973, although it skips over the uh, plot of Exorcist II, The Heretic. Uh, we don't really need to get all the way into the plot of The Exorcist here. Uh, you probably know it, and if you don't, um, it's very easy to find. Uh, this one follows a character named um, Lieutenant Kinderman, um, who was is recast in this film with George C. Scott, but is portraying the same like uh, policeman who was in the original film. Uh, and in this movie, he is friends with another priest who is uh, Father Dyer, played by Ed Flanders here. And he's going through a bit of a crisis of faith. Uh, he has borne witness to um, a lot of like really horrific violence, including like uh, crucifixion of a local child on like these crossed rowing oars, including like a decapitation of the child. And then like they put it's, it's harrowing a racially charged hate crime. Yeah. In addition to like just being uh, the other, it's, it's not clear that the serial killer does not appear to like hate, like race doesn't seem to be a motivating factor of any of the other killings. It seems like the, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but it seems like the Gemini killer or demon uh, that is possessing the Gemini killer seems to be doing it specifically because Lieutenant Kinderman knew this child, but just didn't pass up the opportunity to make it racial when it when it had the chance. To make it as upsetting as possible. Yeah, yeah. So uh, essentially, Lieutenant Kinderman loses, um, he's investigating a series of serial killings that bear all of the markings of the killings of a serial killer known as the Gemini killer, sort of a takeoff on the Zodiac killer, obviously, who 15 years previously was put to death after like being tried and convicted and clearly guilty. 
And these new killings include details that the public didn't know. So it's got to be someone who is either a copycat with intimate knowledge or possibly the Gemini killer reborn. And in, um, he loses his friend, Father Dyer, as part of this. And suddenly uh, he learns that there is a patient in the isolation ward of a local hospital uh, in their mental uh, facilities who appears to be Father Karras from the first film. Um, he's only credited as Patient X and seems to be possessed by this Gemini killer. And so there's this cutting back and forth between Jason Miller's character and James Veneman, who was the Gemini killer, uh, played, of course, by America's darling Brad Dourif. One of his best performances on screen. He is so good in this. It's otherworldly. Like, if you're not convinced that Brad Dourif is an amazing actor, like, he puts on a full showcase in about 7 to 12 minutes time. Yeah, uh, apparently all of that was originally shot with him and without Jason Miller at all. And those were um, studio-mandated changes, uh, just like the inclusion of, um, (laughs) what's his name, Father Morning, who's only in like 10 minutes and never shares a scene with anybody else, except when he shows up to do an exorcism at the end, um, because the studio insisted that there had to be an exorcism if the movie was going to be called Exorcist. I have a lot of thoughts about this, and it might sort of be jumping the gun a little bit, but a lot of the narrative about this movie among like cinephiles is that the studio ruined the film and made it a mess, because that's what William Walter Blatty says as well. And there has been recent pushes to reconstruct what he wanted the movie to be. The Blatty cut? Yeah, well, it's, that's the version that's called Legion. Like, if you by the new Arrow restoration of the film, oh. there is like an assembly cut of his version of the movie. And that's what's, that's the lesion version. Um, I think as is, it's much more interesting than what he originally wanted to do. I agree. Like, I, I, I think that inclusion is, is valid. And I think that it would not, as much as I wish it was Brad Dourif all the time, I think him seeing Father Karas gives the film more weight. Yes, and the exorcism at the climax, whether or not it feels connected sufficiently to the rest of the movie, is quite the payoff. It's so cool. Beautiful (laughs) sequence. I wouldn't trade that for the world. I love the moment where there's the one beam of light. You know, uh, the the demon is talking about how there's nothing but darkness, you know, and then there's that one beam of light. And like this, this priest who's been pretty mangled, to be honest, like just is able to put his hand into like that one spotlight. It really got me. They did not half-ass that finale. It, it wasn't like an insert exactly. that they were like, let's let's just toss this off. It's a really beautifully executed sequence. It sounded like what Blatty wanted was for that to be the scene where Karis's face started morphing out of Brad Dourif's, and there was going to be the sort of like special effect where his face would turn into a bunch of different faces. He would be Brad Dourif. He would be Father Karras. He would be, you know, all the different people that the Gemini killer's soul has possessed through Pazuzu throughout the film um, in this, like, really unnerving effect. And I cannot imagine any version of that being half as, like, wonderful to look at as the exorcism that concludes that narrative. The fire and the snakes and the ground breaking up. It's really cool. Some Ken Russell shit in those final minutes of this. Yeah. 
Before I forget, I do want to go ahead and point out that we have a, a Lanyap podcast alumni in this movie. Zora Lampert plays Kinderman's wife. That's the uh, let's scare Jessica to death. Uh, that's actor. Jessica. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So we and that was very recently. And that's one of the very few other things she's done. So I really that was a very pleasant surprise. It's also nice to watch Brad Dourif act his ass off in a movie that we actually enjoyed, which is not what happened last time we talked about one of his films. I, I was thinking about that as well. I also want to point out that Kinderman's daughter is the like leader of the Young Republicans from Heather's. <laughs> That's so funny. From that opening scene where they're doing the um, you know, the walk and talk of the lunchtime poll. Yeah. About what you would do if you won the lottery, but the world was going to end. Yeah, I, I thought that was fun. And and watching her almost get it, I thought that that girl was about to die. Like, I genuinely thought that that was what was going to happen in this movie. I kind of wish she did. I kind of wish it had gone there. But uh, the threat was enough to be shocking, uh, even without the payoff. Well, and based on, like, how I, I kind of expected them to at least give her a little wound. Like, it kind of looked like it got her a little in the wide shot. We'll talk about the death mechanism a little bit because it is a an unusual cutting tool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you do you want to take this? <laughs> well, it's basically like giant shears that are used to remove human limbs in like autopsies. Is kind of what I was getting mm-hmm. from it. I don't know know what the name of the medical tool is, but these it's these comically large chrome scissors that are like polished so that you can see yourself in it like a mirror. And it's spring loaded, so it's very easy to open, and then they close shut very quickly. So the Gemini killer is possessing all these different patients at the mental hospital, which include really frail old women. Um, and that that's who goes to decapitate the detective's daughter, is this like really frail uh, lady who really doesn't have a lot of body strength. And she's still able to operate these giant like head-chopping scissors uh, that have been decapitating everybody around town. Yeah. Got that young nurse with it. <laughs> There's a lot of old-fashioned nurses' outfits in this one, which makes it really easy for people to escape from this hospital. Yeah. Because it doesn't take a lot to pose in that. Um, have we really explained what the Gemini Killer is? Basically, uh, Father Karras, or not Father Karras, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Kinderman goes and has conversations with this being that he sees as his old friend Damien, the priest who died at the end of The Exorcist, but which we occasionally see as what is actually within him, which is basically the serial killer who tells the story about going into the darkness at the time that he was put to death by the state. And he doesn't say demons and he doesn't say devils, but the things that are over there is basically what he calls them. And they made a deal with him to allow him to basically become a demon himself to possess the body of Father Karras in order to subvert the virtue of his legacy as the like priest who drove out Pazuzu. Like he has the explicit intentionality of retroactively ruining this priest's reputation and career. And it's a very terrifying monologue that he gives. Uh, I, I will say this, you know, for the movie, a lot of it, it, you can tell it was written by someone who's a novelist. Like it, it, there's just a lot of dialogue back and forth for long segments of it, and it's great. It kind of reminds me of like Mike Flanagan's work, where it's always just an actor's showcase. 
Yeah, and they manipulate his performance too, where it becomes explicitly cinematic. So it's not just straight Brad Dourif doing like a theatrical aside of the audience, like a, a soliloquy. I guess is the shorter way of saying that. But they repitch his voice a little bit into that low Laurie Anderson register. Sometimes he <laughs> physically does it himself, so where he sounds exactly like Chucky, like he breaks that voice out a little bit. But the movie plays with his image and his vocal sounds uh so that it's not just straight dialogue without any kind of like break from reality like there is like a supernatural element to that delivery as well but that actor is just a phenomenal beast and just allowing him to rave like a demonic lunatic for seven minutes on end would have produced enough results even without that kind of tinkering in post-production he is amazing. He is one of our greatest living actors. He's one of our greatest living performers. I will, I'll, I'll stake my Friday paycheck on it. Uh, I also, if we're going to start singling out performances, because there are a lot of good ones in here, I also want to like say that as great as Brad Dourif is in this, George C. Scott is the MVP and so carries good. the movie on his shoulders for long stretches where there's not a lot happening, but he has such a dry wit and such a sardonic delivery of all these lines where you're just eating out of the palm of his hand he says everything in this like really quiet register when he's not yelling and his like hardcore that's my daughter explosive <laughs> fits of anger but uh like there's that scene where he tells his friend the, the priest the story about the carp that's swimming in his bathtub and that's another monologue that's maybe just only a minute or two long but it is the funniest comedy bit i've seen in a movie in a long time I was just cracking up laughing at his delivery. This movie was much funnier than I expected it to be. Very dry humor, but every joke lands. Every bit of him and Dyer, that priest that you're talking about, like when they go to the movies, every bit of it is great. You know, Kinderman arrives late, but uh, Dyer has not gone in and gotten popcorn yet. It's pretty great. I'm, I'm underselling it, but there's something very believable and fun about their relationship that bleeds through in that. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising because you just said you uh, really enjoyed George C. Scott in one of the greatest comedies ever made, uh, Dr. Strangelove, uh, not that long ago. Right. But he is shockingly funny in this. Like, it, it just comes to him with such an ease. Like, he's just a naturally funny guy. And yeah, that scene with the carp monologue, Father Dyer is cracking up laughing and it feels very genuine. Like, the actor couldn't keep it straight. Yeah. Uh, while George C. Scott is like very close to him uh, telling the story about a carp that's in it, been in his bathtub for the past three days. It's almost like a SNL level, like the actors like breaking on camera. That makes you laugh even more. How do we feel about this heaven dream sequence? A phenomenal piece of art in its own right. It, it is a break from reality where you see famous icons, um, Fabio and Patrick Ewing playing these angels in this um, hospital slash church space where all the uh, decapitated victims are stitched back together and sort of waiting for their turn to ascend to heaven. And uh, it is one of the most disorienting, beautiful, pristine sequences in 90s filmmaking. It's very interesting. I really love the look of like the matte painting heaven, sort of like the triage train station. And the look of the angels, it's so like basic, but you really get the idea that like Kenderman's view of good and evil is very influenced by, you know, kind of very straightforward Catholic ideals. 
What was that movie we watched about the afterlife? Wings. Uh, I, I was so ready because I was thinking about it too. It's Wings of Fame. Yeah, that has like a very like matter of fact, but still uncanny feeling to it that that yeah. scene has. And when I thought back to this movie, the two images that immediately came to mind were Brad Dourif and the holding cell and that angel sequence, that, that one dream sequence where he's visited by angels. Yeah. And in my mind, this has always been the one exorcist movie that I've really loved and loved going back to. And I don't particularly care about the original that much, mm. even though I am freaking pilled. Like I love that director. <laughs> I just don't think it's the best use of his very realistic grounded version of filmmaking. There's an ecstatic Catholic mania to this movie from the beginning. Like the opening credits is a POV shot of the killer. I believe in another nightmare sequence going to decapitate the first victim. But in that sequence, right before the title card, we go into a church where the wind outside just blows the church doors open yeah. and blood just starts dripping off of statues and on, on priest collars. And then the crucifix, <laughs> uh, Jesus's <laughs> eyes just pop open. Like he just woke up from a nightmare uh, yeah. on the statue. And I'm like, this is fucking incredible. Like I, I can't believe I've been listening to people talk shit about this movie that, you know, I got from a blockbuster four for 20 sale back in the day. And I've always said is like the one great exorcist film. And I've heard over the years that like, it's laughably bad. Like it's the one with Fabio in it. It's a joke. And what it is since been reclaimed as okay, a great God. film um, because I have nothing left to advocate for. <laughs> Uh, to repeat myself from earlier, like every movie like this that is kind of stuck in my craw is like something great, at least has, you know, 20 to 30 much more influential people um, willing to stand behind it as a great work of art. Even if the version they like to stand behind is the assembly cut of the Legion version, which to me does not sound as interesting. Yeah, I don't think that it sounds as interesting to me either. Uh, I'm still going to call this Exorcist Legion, though, I think. <laughs> That's fair. That's what the um, novel was called. Right. That Walter Blatty um, wrote himself as a spec script, didn't get picked up, and then he wrote the novel version to adapt himself into a movie. Uh, he right. really wanted to see this get made. Yeah. And I kind of feel his full commitment to the Catholicism aspect of it a lot. Like, yeah. I was already saying with the craft, like that kind of iconography still speaks with me, even though I'm not a believer anymore. I still like the ritual and the paraphernalia of it a lot. And I think it's very powerful stuff um, just as an image, you know? Yeah. And this movie just sort of wholly commits to that and just believes in the transcendental and the paranormal in a way that I find very liberating and freeing and more cinematic than Freakin's approach in the first one, which is very methodical and scientific. And it's like very grounded in reality. It's like, trying to prove to you that there's no other explanation for what's happening except that it's a demon. Right. And then we get the exorcism in the, the final act that like deals with that issue once we're all convinced that it's real. And I, I just don't find that as fun as this one where immediately the church doors blow open. Jesus's eyes are like wide awake. It's comical. It is funny. But, yeah. But I mean, but I think intentionally so to an extent, which is what I think the haters probably don't get. Right. It is a little silly, but I also found it very scary and, you know, beautiful too. Yeah. There's also, there's another statue that's very scary, but funny later on too, that people like to pick on. 
according to my research prior to this discussion. The sort of vampiric hallway statue? The one that looks like the Joker. <laughs> yeah. Great gag. Yeah. Great gag. It's, it, it, it is a little Looney Tunes, but I think that it, that doesn't make it not scary. It just means that maybe evil has a sense of humor. And you kind of get that from Dura's performance that, like, he's not in a hurry, you know? Like, he's deathless at this point. Like, he's not rushing to explain himself. He's taking his time and, like, you know, just every single word, he's really, like, letting it, savoring it. It's lingering in the mouth. And I think that that's really fascinating. I also, I want to speak on behalf of Father Dyer, because he's very funny, too. I really enjoyed their bit where he is in the hospital, uh, and George C. Scott comes to see him. And he's like reading women's wear daily and, and George C. Scott is giving him a hard time about it. He's like, look, you know, I gotta, I gotta keep up with the times, which I found very endearing. Their back and forth is very genuine and beautiful. You wouldn't see something like that now. Which is a part of the original exorcist, right? There's a lot of like male bonding in that movie among the cops and the priests. True. And also makes it more effective when he discovers his dead friend um, decapitated and completely drained of his blood by this impossible murder. Like it, it just is physically impossible to achieve what the killer does. And um, his very real time sort of muted reaction to it. There's a lot of pain there, even though he's still doing his dry wit um, a little bit in that scene too. Like there is kind of a joke to how he's reacting. Like I cannot believe what I'm looking at, but also it's like painful because we've seen them hang out as friends so much. And it's such a sweet little relationship between the two men. Right. And that they're both bonded because of father Harris as well, or curious. I can never remember how to pronounce it. Please don't give me a hard time. Internet. <laughs> uh, apparently one of Blatty's big problems was that he felt like what Friedkin had done in the exorcist left it open to the interpretation that evil had won. And that was one of his big things that he wanted for this one, was to make it really clear that evil did not win in this, this one, which was, and, or the last one, you know, by retroactively, uh, by retroactive confirmation, I should say, because, and that's the Catholicism part of him that you're talking about coming out. Like, he is a true believer in this. Like, he, uh, he's a true believer in this possession possibility. And therefore, that's why he's able to make it you know, to write it so frighteningly. But to him, because it is real, good has to win, which I find kind of funny. The ending is so silly. Like, the problem is solved with a bullet. I, I actually really liked it. I, um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of a, a Talk to Me, where, like, the death has to happen at a certain point. Like, there's no coming back from it. I loved his, like the moment that father Karras breaks through and he's like, shoot me now, you have to do it right now. This is the only opportunity. And yeah. that, you know, one of the things that happens to the protagonist and talk to me is that the demons are telling her that they're tormenting this boy and give her a vision of that happening, you know, as uh, whether or not that's real is up to your interpretation. But th that implies that that's what's happening to, you know, the father, uh, father Karras. And this one is that he is being forced because his body has been like, rehabilitated to the point of being conscious again he's like sitting in the sunken place watching this demon use his body to murder people and so his like begging to be killed in that moment to free him from that i thought actually was pretty powerful well okay do you remember the end of yes madam where like we've gone through all these like grand fights and these complicated back channel police 
missions and then it just ends with like a quick shot from a bullet like yeah. it's got a, that kind of anticlimactic feel to it as well i just found it a little silly which i don't think is a necessarily a bad thing it was just like kind of caught me off guard a little bit especially if your problem with the original is that it's too ambiguous and too dour which i think are two things that like we really kind of want out of a horror movie like i think Horror works better when evil triumphs and it's hard to leave the theater with like a safe, secure feeling. I kind of don't want that for my spooky movies. I want to walk away feeling sort of unnerved and unmoored from reality a little bit. Yeah. And a little aroused. (laughs) I mean, ideally. (laughs) (laughs) I do think part of what makes this movie in general feel sillier to the public than the original is that it is so over the top and fully committed to the Catholic terror of it, where like the first one is very grounded in reality and is quote unquote based on true events. And that movie was released in a much more religious time in mass culture, where like I still have coworkers right now who won't talk about scary movies because that's real to them. They believe in demons. And right. the occult yeah. and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, I don't want to mess with that. I don't want that in my head because it's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the original Exorcist came out in a time where most people who were engaging with media believed in the devil as like a real figure. I don't know that necessarily thought of Pazuzu on a daily basis, but they definitely believed in the devil. And it had a cultural impact because it treats it so seriously and so methodically and bases it in reality that growing up, I never really cared about the movie that much. There's obviously scenes in it that are like iconic and have influenced a lot of great work. And I don't want to like say it doesn't belong in the horror canon just because I personally find it a little dull, but it's not my favorite freaking movie. He applies that same methodology to, you know, counterfeit work in To Live and Die in LA. And I find that fascinating. He does it to the drug trade in The French Connection. Or even the police work in Cruising, even though that movie is really over the top, there's a lived-in like documentary feel to those leather bars that like would have been lost to time if he wasn't so connected to the reality of that scene, you know. And it is so specific. Um, the sort of specificity and the real-world groundedness of The Exorcist just doesn't speak to me that much because I don't believe in God and the devil. But growing up in the Catholic Church, I do still feel this sort of like spiritual power from just the sort of ritual of it. And the, like I said earlier, like the sort of like church paraphernalia of it. Um, And I feel like this movie is fully committed to that. Like it never really gets into the demon stuff as much as it gets into like the Gemini killer aspect of it. But the way to combat that demonic possession um, from that soul entering people's bodies is through the ritual of the Catholic church ceremonies. And I just, I just find that ecstatic break from reality, um, a lot more compelling and fun than, uh, the sort of grounded freaking approach in the first one. That is kind of the point of the first one is that it's supposed to feel more documentarian to establish that reality. So like you were saying before you as an audience member can't doubt that what you're seeing is a possession, but you kind of won me over. Not that I was ever like against you, but I do think this one is at least as good as the original. I mean, the original has its place. It's a classic for a reason, but this one deserves to be 
much more well remembered in my opinion. And I think it's gotten there. Like I just watched it on the Criterion channel uh, for this episode. Like I think it's gotten its accolades in recent years. <laughs> I forgot it was there. I watched it on Tubi. <laughs> the two sides of the coin, you know? And honestly, when I talk about like having nothing left to advocate for, when I'm saying that like Glenn or Glenda has been reclaimed as like a great work, which it is, I'm really talking about like 14 people on Twitter, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like you'll see a, an opinion repeated enough times by like a small number of people that it starts to feel like, well, everyone loves The Exorcist 3, obviously. It's been reclaimed as a great work. And I might be talking about 30 to 50 people, but uh, that's where we're at, man. Yeah. <laughs> I've been. um bubbled securely enough on the internet that it feels like the whole world to me even though my coworkers who don't watch scary movies might remember this as being the dumb one you know yeah i'll go ahead and admit that looking at this filmography there are so many good ones like movies that i know are classics on the list that i have not seen to the point where other than the exorcist i think the only freaking movies i've seen are cruising and bug from 2006 so but Three it was of his great. Great works. I've never seen The French Connection, I guess. I, I, have to, I have to admit to that. It's kind of a repellent film. It's very good, but it is that sort of 70s gritty police action filmmaking. And it is very like methodical in the way that the original Exorcist is. Okay. I actually vastly prefer to live and die in LA, which is kind of like the Exorcist 3. Uh, version of the French Connection, where he really goes over the top with the '80s aesthetics and has a Wang Chung soundtrack. Oh, William Peterson! All right, I'm already uh, Dean Stockwell. I'm there. I'm ready. And a very sexy, uh, villainous performance from Willem Dafoe as well. Okay, all right. You know William Peterson. I, I adore him. I, I think if I hadn't just watched Manhunter, I, I think I'd really be in the mood this spooky season. Also, you know, cruising itself has been reclaimed because that was like a reviled work for a long time. Right. Because it was one of the like more mainstream representations of homosexuality that most people were familiar with. And there was a time where it was just considered bad representation. Yeah. I mean, its production was protested because people did not want gay sex to be associated with like leather bars and fisting. But now those bars don't exist anymore the very real people doing very real stuff in that movie, because it was slightly documentary, aren't around anymore. And that's the record of that very specific scene. Yeah. So, like, even that has been reclaimed as a great work, where I feel like five to ten years ago, I was saying that was my favorite freaking movie, and it was kind of like a spicy take. Mm. All of my takes have been de-spiced. <laughs> I've got nothing left to give you people. Well, it's time to join me in praising I Declare War and Live Freaky, Die Freaky. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I, I will say uh, I didn't mention it when we were talking about what we watched because I didn't sit there and watch the whole thing. But I was at the bar last night and cruising was on. And a friend of mine was like, oh, you know, they really don't make them like this anymore. I was like, they still make like this kind of like erotic, sexy, spicy, queer shit. It just isn't coming from the Americas. Yeah, it's in France. It's in France. You gotta you gotta watch Knife and Heart. Well, I for those of you out there, whether you've got Criterion or Tubi, uh, you have access to The <laughs> Exorcist 3. So you can watch it without commercials if you've got that streaming service. And you know what? I, very strangely, this Tubi viewing experience only had one commercial per break, and there were much fewer 
than there normally were. So I don't know. Maybe they're fixing that algorithm. That's to be giving it the respect it deserves, you know? Yeah, really and truly. Uh, this movie is very funny from the outset. It's very creepy from the outset. I wouldn't call it a horror comedy per se, but it is one of those horror movies where uh, you're kind of lulled into a false sense of security because of how funny it is for parts of it. And for a movie that's directed by an unconventional film director, like directed by the author of the source material, which it may be even the best example of that that I can name off the top of my head. It is shot with a very playful cinematic eye. Lots of low and high angles, lots of intense close-ups. Kind of what I was describing with the wind blowing the church doors open earlier. It's got that like final destination version of dread where like, it just feels like, the atmosphere itself is the evil that's all around us. And purposefully, yeah. Yeah, and that style of high artifice filmmaking I find very engaging. Um, And yeah, I'm impressed by the way it looks on top of all those sort of interesting narrative things it does as well. Yeah. I There are a lot of like shots from just like the upper corners of rooms that I thought was really interesting. Especially whenever um, Kinderman, you know, comes to identify the body of Dyer. And there's a lot of work being done with light. The way that the light beams into the cell is really like it, it it creates a lot of atmosphere and it does it's doing a lot of lifting in those sequences. And of course, one of the big sequences in this movie, the one that people do talk about as being like, oh, one of the great jump scares, it is like a really long static shot of this nurse just doing her job and you're just like waiting and waiting and waiting for something terrible to happen to her. And then it breaks that tension where she ends up making a loud noise herself and waking up a patient and then returns to her like very quiet duties before one of the master's minions does her in. It's effective, but I actually, of all the sequences in this movie, if I were to think that people were talking about them, that would be pretty low on the list after like that opening in the church, the exorcism scene itself. And I would even say, you know, Jason Miller's crying out to be killed in the moment that he has possession of his body. And any line of dialogue that comes out of Brad Dirk's mouth. Oh, that goes well. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 